This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. If I want to read anyone's reflections on recent years, it's Russell Moore. The president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC hasn't been as visible or vocal as he was before 2017, at least until the last week following the attack on the U.S. Capitol. But his newest book, The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul, published by B&H, is even better than a tell-all memoir, because it's a grace-infused reflection on where and how to stand tall when it feels like the world is going to crush you. Moore says, the courage to stand is the courage to be crucified. Indeed, Jesus sets the tone for Moore's book. If you're going to worship and follow a Savior who submitted to the cross, you're not going to follow the world's typical mode of courage. I see this book as seeking to reclaim Jesus, or at least his reputation and authority among evangelicals. Moore observes this, an entire generation is watching what goes on under the name of American religion wondering if there is something real to it, or if it is just another useful tool to herd people, to elect allies, to make money. Elsewhere, he writes, I'm not surprised now when I see Jesus used as a mascot to prop up some identity politics or power agenda, or even to cover up private immorality or public injustice. And certainly we've seen that recently with the Jericho March and then the protests turn attack on the Capitol. Moore joins me on Gospel Bound to tell us what scares him. At a lead when no one seems to be following, ambition masquerading as conviction, and much more. Uh, thank you for joining me, Russell. Oh, thanks for having me, Colin. Good to be with you. I read this book as a kind of testimony to your last three years. At least that's what came through to me in passages like this. It's a long one. I, I, I had too many things I wanted to quote from this book, so forgive me for the long, um, long quoting of yourself, but I think it, it puts it well. You write, the problem is that much of what is actually described as courage in Scripture, the bridling of the passions, kindness, humility, is seen as timidity, while many who feel themselves courageous because they tell it like it is are really just seeking to be part of their protective tribes, even when those tribes are boisterous and angry. They may feel that they stand for something, but this is not courage, if courage is defined by Christ. To follow the way of Christ is to stand for the things that matter, and those things are not just the right side on issues or the right side on doctrines, but conformity with Christ in terms of the affections, the experiential lived reality of walking with Christ. Courage is needed not to do radically important things, but to live out a quiet, ordinary life with integrity and with love." End quote. So, does this book seek to explain some of your journey in the last few years? Well, if it does, it's only at a subconscious level because I, I really started working on this project in 2015 uh, as a result mostly of uh, working with campus ministries uh, where there, there were so many evangelical uh, college students and university students who were 
trying to live out their faith and trying to figure out how to do that in this sort of a world. And so that was the genesis of it. But as with everything else that I think I've ever written, I'm uh, seeking to persuade myself <laughs> uh, before I'm seeking to persuade somebody else. That was that was when I wrote a uh, Adopted for Life uh, on adoption. I was trying to sort of bring people along with my own uh, working through. Uh, what does the Bible tell me uh, about this? And uh, something probably was similar here. What actually scares you? I asked that question to Ross Douthit years ago, and it was one of the most illuminating I got because he and I were talking about politics. We were talking about religion, theology, changes in the world. And in the end, he said, none of that scares me. What scares me is this technology and my kids. And I've never forgot that. So you're a pretty courageous guy, but what actually scares you? Well, I think I would have to differentiate that between what ought to scare me and what does uh, scare me. So I would agree with with Ross that technology does uh, scare me as it relates to my kids and not just in the ways that we typically think of that in terms of porn and, and everything else, although that is 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 really uh, true, but also just the uh, continual dehumanization uh, that we see happening all around us. In terms of what really scares me at the personal level, uh, it would probably be um, many of the things that Jesus tells us not to be afraid of. I think probably what I am fearful of uh, most often and that I have to bring to the spirit to be crucified would be the fear of exile, fear of being alone, fear of being rejected uh, by uh, people that I love and respect. I think that would probably be uh, the number one thing. And uh, that might be a little surprising because I've, I've written about exile uh, for all of my life, 25 years of ministry. But I think that's why. There's a reason why I think Jesus says, don't be afraid. And it's it's not because he's saying you don't have anything to be afraid of. It's because he he, know, he knows that we need to be told that. And we all have different points of vulnerability and different points of weakness, but that would be probably at the top of the list of mine. Just yesterday, you wrote about your own position. Does this relate to that? Did it take you a while to come to a point where you thought, even if I do lose my job, I'm okay with that? I am okay with that. I'm, I'm perfectly at peace with when we're living in a time when uh, the name of Jesus is used for horrific uh, things. I've, I've been seeing this take place uh, over the past several years as it applies to um, sexual abuse of uh, children and women uh, and what that has done uh, to the lives of people and also what that has done to the witness of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. And then uh, looking at this gathered mob of people attacking uh, our capital, seeking to murder uh, our vice president, uh, other congressional leaders, and in fact, murdering a Capitol Hill police officer. And as I'm watching the scene of gallows being constructed outside people chanting a uh, hang Mike Pence, there were also signs that said Jesus saves. I mean, that th th this is something that uh, communicates not only the horror of what was taking place, but communicates to people that this is what Jesus Christ is about. And I think we have a responsibility when something satanic 
uh, is being represented as the gospel of Jesus Christ to say that that is not so. Uh, this has uh, consequences that will go on for generations and has eternal consequences as well. Russell, what if you know you need to say something, but you're guaranteed to fail or, or people are not going to listen? That's one of the scenarios that you paint uh, for pastors speaking against racial injustice in the Jim Crow South in your book. I keep wondering, and this has been haunting me, and I know you and I have talked about this before, but why couldn't churches act even when they knew the right thing to do? It's not that every church in the South was completely and totally racist and was not going to give in. In many cases, the leaders or pastors knew the right thing to do and still couldn't bring themselves to do it. I mean, my city today is littered with churches that died because they were afraid of losing people if they did the right thing. And I don't think unless we can get a handle on this history, we can understand how to respond to what happened last week. Well, I think that's right. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that has been haunting me over the past year or so is a passage from Peter Berger, a uh, sociologist, uh, that uh, was written in the early 60s, I believe, uh, in his uh, book uh, on the noise of uh, solemn assemblies. And he talks about uh, how there was a perception that a lot of these church leaders were doing the wrong thing, knowing what the right thing is, and had guilty consciences. So as, as Carl Henry would say, the uneasy conscience that is there. But he argues that instead, uh, that by the time uh, those questions were raised, that consciences had already been navigated around. Because it's easy to talk oneself into um, ways that, that, that one ought to do what's not scary. So in that case, what you say is, well, my people aren't ready for this. If I speak to this, I'm not going to be able to reach Birmingham or Jackson, Mississippi or wherever you are uh, at the time. And so what I'm going to do, and if, and, if, and if I speak to it, I'm just going to be a martyr. They're just going to fire me, which means I can't reach people. And so what I'll do is for the sake of reaching these people, just sort of move very, very slowly, which in most cases meant not at all. Um, and, and, and all the while saying, if, if I speak to this, I'm going to lose my place at the table. And uh, it, man, I've heard this many times about a thousand different scenarios. Well, if, if I'm not here, someone worse than I am will be here. Uh, and, and so I need to, I need to do it. Well, so little by little by little, one can adjust one's conscience to where it, it no longer is even bothered. That's a scary thing. This is a related point, and you already touched on it, Russell. What if you're supposed to lead, but no one appears to be following? I've talked with many pastors who feel strongly convicted about what they believe and what they do. And even when they have the courage to speak, it seems like they cannot get any traction against the media megaphones of the world. So what does courage look like for them, for us? I don't think 
that everyone is required by Jesus to speak to everything all the time. For instance, I, I've had a lot of pastors uh, during the pandemic who would say to me how discouraged they were when they would look at the social media feeds of some people in their church and the way that they were talking to one another and so forth. And, and some of these pastors would say something along the lines of, well, I look at this and I think, where have I failed? And what should I do uh, on, on Sunday morning? And what I have to say is, well, th this isn't your failure. I mean, this is something that just makes visible uh, and, and audible and readable what, what uh, is already there. But say, well, you really can't uh, address that in a Sunday morning sermon one time and, and move forward from it. this. This is showing you sort of after effects of things that have gone on before. And so you have to have a very, very long-term strategy of speaking to that. So I don't think that everybody has to speak to everything uh, all the time. Sometimes you're going to make mistakes and not speak where you should or speak where you shouldn't. And you're going to make mistakes. We're all, we're all going to do that. But I think the, the main thing is to recognize and to know uh, when, when someone says no one is following me, that's rarely the case when, when someone is faithfully uh, following Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes what's happening is uh, you're speaking to a, an entire group of people that you don't see or know, who sometimes can feel very alone or sometimes have grown cynical. And you're speaking sometimes to future generations. Yeah, that that's what I was actually going to mention there, because when I go back then to the situation that you and I know so well, the civil rights movement and white churches and their responses to it, I know that the careers of these pastors who did speak out, who did take up the cause of integration, ended in disgrace and failure and sometimes even you know, they, they died because of the stress that was, oh, yeah. in, was imposed on them. Mm -hmm. And yet, while their lives ended in failure, in the worldly sense, I can look back on them, at least in these books, and appreciate what they did, that they did the right thing in their time. And I guess as Christians, we should be able to have comfort in that, right? Because we know that this is not the end in this life. Yeah, I had a pastor say to me one time, that he was a preacher's kid and uh, his dad had been pastor in a rural Mississippi church. And the person who was talking to me said that he was going through the, the, almost the stereotypical preacher's kid rebellion uh, as a teenager and uh, really was far, far away from the Lord. But his dad in the church uh, was preaching the gospel and was um, seeking to baptize African-American uh, neighbors who had come to faith in Christ. And he came into opposition from the Ku Klux Klan and from the deacons at his church. And this guy said he was watching his dad to see whether or not this was really real for him or whether this was a job for him. And his dad was fired and he ended up being a, a janitor, I think, at night at a hospital in order to make ends meet. And uh, this pastor told me that when his dad was dying, his dad said, I'm, I'm just really sorry for um, having to move the family and disrupt your life in high school. And this guy said, Dad, you, you lost a ministry position. You gained a son. 
um, I, I think that you you often don't know uh, what it is that the Lord's doing around you. So you, you think about the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 1 and 2 uh, about the Judaizers. I did not yield to them for a minute. And why? So that the gospel would be preserved for you. Uh, th- there is um, Seth Godin's leadership uh, writer that I I read everything that he writes. I've benefited so much from him. He, he talks about uh, choosing one's audience is choosing one's future. And one's audience can never be everybody. Uh, and, and he'll talk about, go, go look at Amazon reviews for Moby Dick or Huckleberry Finn or uh, you know, some other great novel. And there'll be, there'll be one-star reviews uh, for, for those books. Everything can't speak to everybody. But if you're, you're speaking to a group of people and seeking to lead them and to move them forward, often those are people that you don't immediately see around you. Or if you do, they're people who uh, are a different audience than you expected. And I think that's something that you see so often in Scripture is that the people that God calls end up with audiences that they did not expect. And I can think of just just among people that I know and respect, I can think of a thousand people whose ministries did not go the direction that they would have chosen them to have gone. And they ended up with joy and effectiveness. Uh, in terms, I, I can think of, I spoke at the retirement uh, service uh, for a pastor who had been fired from two churches. <laughs> And uh, ended up uh, planting a congregation that has reached countless people that he never would have reached because he never would have thought of himself as a church planter. He, he would have thought of himself as a, as a, a large established church, uh, church pastor. And God derailed his plans in his view. But, but gave him the people that he was calling him to, to minister to. Elijah sees that. With the widow of Zarephath, uh, you you have that just happening repeatedly in Scripture. So, who are you speaking to, Russell, when you know you're saying something that the majority, if not the vast majority, of Southern Baptists are going to disagree with? Well, I mean, for one thing, I don't know that that's always the case. I mean, some sometimes, especially in my corner of the world, the majority of people are not the people who are sort of firing off missives at people on Facebook. Um, the, the, the people who are, love Jesus and, and would never do that sort of thing. And so it's easy for people to caricature uh, just based on, on what uh, a small minority of people uh, do and say. Uh, but my, what I think God has called me to do primarily uh, is to speak to people who are in the situation that I was in as a 15-year-old kid going through a spiritual crisis where I was looking at racism in church context. I was looking at cover-up of sexual immorality uh, in in many church uh, contexts in the Bible Belt and was starting to wonder, is Christianity really just about Southern culture and politics and Jesus is just sort of the way to, to get there. And that was a terrifying thought for me. 
And uh, what what happened was, thankfully, uh, I had read the Chronicles of Narnia so many times as a kid that I recognized C.S. Lewis's name on on the spine of mere Christianity, and took it home and read it. And what I tell people all the time is, it what changed my life were not the ard- arguments in mere Christianity, although those are good arguments, but my problem wasn't intellectual. Uh, my problem instead was, uh, was one of um, panic at maybe Christianity as a means to an end. And it was less what Lewis was saying as much as how he was saying it that he really wasn't trying to sell me anything. He really wasn't trying to manipulate me uh, from the grave. Uh, he was just bearing witness to something. And uh, from that, finding uh, Christianity Today magazine and, uh, and, and reading those columns by people like Philip Yancey and J.I. Packer and Chuck Colson and, and others had a similar effect, sort of a radio free Bible belt in, in my mind. And so I, um, I, I really spend a lot of my time uh, talking to young people who love Jesus and are just about to walk away and to say, no, Jesus is worth following. And don't confuse Jesus with whatever you have seen around you or experienced uh, around you by people who claim the name of Jesus. Another thing you write in The Courage to Stand is this, clearly the scriptures call us to judge those on the inside who bear the name of brother and not those on the outside. Doing the reverse can make for a much easier ministry as a hack, end quote. Russell, how can we reverse the obsession with what's happening in the world that seems to have so overtaken much of the church so that we can focus on the integrity, especially the theological and moral integrity of the church? Well, I think that th- there's always going to be a temptation to highlight the sins of whoever is not just on the outside, but whoever's on the outside and unpopular with the people in front of you on the inside. That's always easy to do, and uh, and and somebody can get a reputation of preaching hard against sin when they're really just getting up and talking about what's going on in Hollywood or what's going on, uh, you know, somewhere else, rather than than actually speaking to the sins that are right in front of people, and also to give people uh, maybe even unintentionally. The idea that outward conformity uh, can reverse the fall in, in a way that's that's not true. If we think about what Jesus says with Matthew 18, which is, uh, of course, applying to a, a church discipline situation where something has gone wrong, a similar pattern, I think, works in the, the heart of a, a follower of Christ, which is start with uh, your own sin and your own temptations and, and and so forth and and then move to bearing one another's burdens uh, in the the church body to which you belong and the the church you know, for lack of a better word tribe to which you belong and then work outward from there 
Uh, and so we speak differently inside and outside. Inside, we speak to people who have been uh, redeemed by Christ and who are bearing witness to the world of what the kingdom of God is like. And we remind one another, remember who you are. When we're speaking to the outside world, what we're doing is representing Christ in order to convict of sin and to invite. And so it, it, we're saying, come come and see. We're speaking in a very different way to the outside world. And it's just easy to get that all convoluted and turned around. Yes, yeah, another way where our historical experience informs us and you look at the Southern landscape over the last 70, 80 plus years. And one of the things evangelicals have been known for is preaching against sin. Mm-hmm. And yet the sin that was often not preached against at all was the sin that we now remember them so much for. And and even when uh, th- there are many people who will note that um, Southern churches would often be preaching very hard against personal uh, morality and, and not about uh, the things that were going on in terms of slavery and the Jim Crow, lynching, everything else. And that's all completely true. But it's also true, even if, if one just isolates the personal morality, that too would differ uh, from, right. from area right. to area. So if um, I, I remember when I moved from South Mississippi uh, to Kentucky, Uh, And I went to preach at a church in Kentucky. I was shocked to see a deacon smoking a cigarette. Not surprised (laughs) that a deacon smoked a cigarette. I had seen deacons smoke cigarettes. I had never seen a deacon smoke a (laughs) cigarette on the front, uh, you know, out in the front of the church, right in public in front of everybody. (laughs) <laughs> because you know yeah. that was a, a tobacco farming area. Nobody was going to be preaching right. against uh, tobacco. They would have Wendellberry country right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was right down the right down the street <laughs> from Mr. Berry's home. Yeah. Here's something you write about seminary students. You say this: some people even seemed bored by biblical or doctrinal or practical truths that couldn't be marshaled in debates against others. This is the spirit of the age, end quote. Here's something, Russell, I've been trying to just run over in my head. I've noticed that Baptists in particular, and I count myself among the Baptists, even though I'm not in a Southern Baptist congregation, but that Baptists in particular seem to be especially attuned to political dynamics, by which I mean how their views position themselves in relation to others And in many cases, it almost seems to be more important to them than their orientation toward biblical truth. I'm wondering if that's a byproduct of the democratic polity of Baptist churches with congregational votes and that kind of authority, but I might be way off base here. So here's your chance to set me straight. What am I observing, uh, right or wrong, and, and where does this seem to come from? Yeah, I think you're a little bit off base there because I think that this is not unique yeah. uh, to Baptist life. I, I see this phenomenon taking place uh, in all sorts of uh, sectors across uh, evangelicalism, and it it sort of shows up in different ways. So uh, t- take aside politics for a minute, if what we mean by politics is sort of partisan, who's up, who's right. down, you know, so forth. But if you think about it in terms of controversy, 
uh, th this is what I was talking about in the book is that I would encounter a lot of th there was a time when uh, at the very beginning of my ministry, when I looked around at cultural Christianity and saw this as a problem, I thought the answer to cultural Christianity would be a theological resurgence. Uh, and so when you start seeing that, people being much more attuned to theology, I, I really thought this is what is needed uh, to correct this. I no longer I no longer think that because theology alone uh, is not going to correct this when the theology often becomes even good theology often can become just one more form of cultural Christianity. And the way that can show up is with uh, people who will know a lot of theology, but what they know is how to argue whatever are the points of specific controversy at the moment. Now, to some degree, that's always going to be the case. Uh, if, if, you're, um, if you're living in the time of Augustine, you're going to be shaped between Augustinian and Pelagian views of human nature and sin and, and so forth. And, and many of Nicaea is about controversy and so forth. The Reformation is about controversy. But there's a sense often where it's, a, it's about having the answers to these specific debates so I can tell you why complementarianism is good and egalitarianism is bad or vice versa, why uh, limited atonement is good and unlimited atonement is bad or vice versa. You know, all of those very specific debates, but sometimes these are people who really don't know um, what Ezekiel is about. <laughs> and, uh, and what I think is, is necessary for following Christ is a, a shaping and forming by the scripture that is not all just at the cognitive level. In, in other words, the, the word of God is shaping and forming you even in ways that you're not aware of at the time and preparing you for questions that you're not asking at the time and maybe no one else is asking at, at the time. So if we, if we think about, uh, for instance, uh, Jesus in his, his desert temptations, uh, people will often say, notice that Jesus is quoting scripture. And that's exactly right. That's key. But what Jesus is not doing is quoting back scriptures that he learned in order to combat the question of what do you do about turning uh, bread and stone, uh, stone into bread. <laughs> Instead, what Jesus is doing is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and quoting from Deuteronomy 8 and quoting from the Psalms, indicating that he knows exactly where he is, that he is standing where Israel had stood before. And he's standing there in the spirit. And I think that's often what uh, that's often what's missing. There was a little book that um, I think Baker put out uh, a couple years ago, a concise guide to the New Testament. And the introduction to it was gold because the author is talking about uh, having a generation of Bible quoters, but not Bible readers. 
And when I read that, I thought that's exactly right. I mean, even when you have people who would say, well, we're uh, we're biblically faithful and biblically literate and would contrast themselves with market driven sort of uh, evangelicalism, whatever. Often that's what it is, is Bible quoting not Bible reading and Bible shaping. And, and that's, uh, that's a problem for us. Let's try to compare our timelines here. When did that realization about theology come to you? I don't know that it came all at once to me. It, yeah. was, it was something that I think over the years, I, I started to see some of the people that initially I had thought well, they're going to be the ones who can sort of lead us out of uh, Bible Belt cultural Christianity because they're they're so well catechized. Who um, later on I would see um, repeating the very same things, and, and the question was why? What? Why? Why is that the case? And then you know, honestly, just looking at when I look at my own life. And I say, uh, where has the Lord most confronted me and and taught me? And it's it's almost always in ways that uh, that take me to the Word of God and in prayer, in desperation, in ways that later on. Um, I may have theological reflections about that I could systematize and put down to some degree, but not at the moment. That, that's not what's going on. And so th- this is, uh, so I think it was just a, it's a long process, I think, of, of realizing that. This is a related question, Russell, but why for many evangelicals is political alignment more important to them than theological alignment. This is one thing you write about in the book. You allude to it a a couple different times at least. But in other words, why will somebody anathematize you over political positions while partnering with actual heretics? Because uh, politics feels more real to us than the kingdom of God does. Um, I, I think that it's it's able to be, one is able to participate in politics as a spectator sport. So for the most part, what we're dealing with is often very different than, say, Constantine or Charlemagne or, or someone else who's channeling political power through religion. Now, that that does happen a, a lot, but but it happens mostly uh, with people who actually have power. When we're talking about everyday normal people, uh, what we're typically talking about is the way that politics becomes at the spectator level, a way of defining who I am over and against who you are. And that that feels more uh, lifelike to people because it's some it's a way of walking by sight rather than walking by by faith i mean apart from from faith uh ur would have seemed much realer to abram than um than the promised land uh, would have uh, much less the kingdom of god that he he saw and, and greeted from afar i think that's part of it i think the other part of it is um if, if you notice how often paul is warning about 
an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrelsomeness and often putting those things in the very same context as sexual immorality. And for a while, I would wonder, why is he doing that? But after now 25 years in ministry, I, I've concluded they're coming from the same place. So when I'm dealing with somebody who's uh, wrecking his life with maybe um, marital infidelity, for instance, I almost never uh, find someone. I mean, often I'll talk to and say this is a man uh, who's doing this often his wife will be saying, well, maybe I wasn't attractive enough or maybe. And that is, well, at least in my experience, never been the case. Exactly. That that was the case. Instead, uh, what usually happens is that you have somebody who's trying to recreate uh, the feeling that they had, maybe when they were in high school or they're in college and it's I like her to she like me, uh, you know, that sense of kind of drama. And then it, it drives them into this, it gives them a feeling of life. And, and often these uh, adulterous people, whether male or female, will say to me, but you just don't understand. I, I feel alive for the first time in a long time. And I think also this sense of uh, identifying oneself and uh, tribalizing oneself in view of uh, controversy and craving for controversy is a similar thing. It gives a feeling of life that really isn't life, but it's, it's like the electrical charge going through a dead frog. It'll, it'll make that, uh, that leg jerk, uh, but it's not life. And I think that's often, uh, that's often where this comes from. And an election night gives us a tangible verification of whether or not our identity is valid and whether or not our tribe is winning. And that's especially true when um, there's a sense in which we have, I mean, Neil Postman warned us about this, about the way that, um, I mean, I think God has designed us with a narrative sense of reality, sense of our lives. And what Postman was warning us about is is sort of what television would do to that. I, I don't think Neil Postman could have ever imagined what reality television and social media could right. do to that. But I think that there's a sense of um, election night for people who are more politically oriented. This is this is when the narrative is resolved. <laughs> so this tells you who the winners are and who the losers are, and that's especially true when it's in the interests of people to um, to speak of everything in apocalyptic terms. The, this is, if, if this election doesn't go uh, our way, whoever our happens to be, if it doesn't go that way, then you will not recognize America. America will be gone. I mean, you know, I've been hearing that since I was, um, you know, in preschool, Sunday school uh, from people, and it only becomes more and more heightened all the time. So you have people who really do think this is when the storyline is going to be resolved. Either, okay, our problems are solved or uh, nighttime has come uh, in, in that way. And and that's just not the way actually that life works. Uh, 
And so I think that Augustine's framework with city of God, city of man is so much more biblical and, and, and explains reality so much better in a way that gives a sense of perspective that ought to draw us back from hooray, we won, <laughs> uh, or a sense of, oh, no, we're about to lose everything to say, no, we have a, we have a certain kind of tranquility. Got two more questions here with Russell Moore, author of The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Russell, how can you tell if conviction is actually just a strategy of ambition? Well, I think one way, uh, one way that one knows that is just by continually interrogating that and uh, in the same way that we have to do with, with anything else. Um, but the other way is to say, is this something that is consistently being applied? Now, we're sinners, and so nothing is ever going to be perfectly consistent, but uh, am I seeking to be consistent in the way that I'm applying this uh, is a is a really helpful tell, I think, as to whether or not uh, whether or not one has is whether what one has is conviction or it's something else. And so if you sometimes you can have people um, who can say to themselves, well, I'm following Jesus and I'm 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 walking the narrow way when in reality, they're just sort of conforming to uh, an audience. Uh, and sometimes, I mean, in the world that we're in now, uh, one can find those silos and herds wherever. Um, so just constantly asking, is this something that is actually consistently uh, being applied in terms of my life? And, and also to say, um, that this sounds like a contradiction, but it's, it's not in my view. Uh, am I changing? I mean, if, if you're not ever able to change your mind, um, I was struck years and years and years ago by hearing about, um, you know, several publishers would do these four views books, five views books, three views books on various issues. And someone was telling me about being a part of one of those projects. And the leader of the project said, let's get together and have a retreat and see if any of us change our minds when we spend the weekend in prayer and, and, uh, and study. And someone said, if we do, it'll ruin the book. <laughs> and, I, mean, I don't even remember what the what the four views were there, uh, but the the attitude there was was one that is really admirable to say uh, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ here who are accountable to the Word of God, um, and so theoretically the Word of God should be able to to change us if we can be convinced. So I think that the saying is is am, am I. Can I see in my life a consistency and integrity, and can I also see in my life a kind of uh, teachability and flexibility in ways that I have, have changed in response to the authority of Christ, not against him? Let's say, Russell, you get a chance to talk to yourself 
as you accepted the presidency of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. What do you tell yourself? I would um, be really, really quiet and would uh, walk away. <laughs> and here's why. I would, I would almost <laughs> grand inquisitor uh, myself uh, in that case, because um, I often think uh, about that question, uh, because I'll not about necessarily that point in my life, but often I'll think of different points in my life and say, what would I say to myself? What sorts of questions would I have for my future self? And what would I want to say to myself back then? And it's a helpful exercise for me to go through because usually um, whether I'm thinking about my 20 year old self, my 30 year old, any, any point, usually what myself now would have to say is stop wasting so much time worrying about stuff. The, the, the things that you're worried about, most of it doesn't happen. And the things that do happen, you're, God's faithful. You're able to, to get through that. I think that in everything in my life, God has shown himself to me in different ways, and I wouldn't want to take any of those away. So mm. I really wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to direct myself in that way, except to say, uh, don't, don't worry. It, it, it'll be all right. Yeah. Well, uh, Lord willing, I'll turn 40 in a few, in a few mm -hmm. months or a couple months. And it gave me a chance recently to look back on my thirties. And one of my original, my original thought was what an amazing decade. Look how much of my life changed. Look at all the amazing things that happened. Who, my, how would my 30 year old self have had any idea about these things that were going to yeah. happen. And then I thought a little bit more and I thought, wait a minute, my thirties were horrible. All kinds of terrible things happened yeah. in my thirties. I never, how could I have ever thought that I would do the things that I did, or I would suffer the things that I suffered or that I would experience what I experienced. And then I stopped and I said, huh, well, I guess it's going to be the same thing right. in my forties, Lord willing, yeah. and fifties, and sixties, and I think that's the way God designed it. You know what? As as I think about that a little bit more, what I would say to my younger self wouldn't be about preparing for anything coming in the future, but it would be about patience and um, kindness to people. When when I look at the things that I say, I regret these things the most. It is um, often giving up on people too soon, not understanding as much uh, what somebody was going through uh, at the time. I would tell myself uh, in every case, when you think you know something, default to humility. And when you're facing someone, default to kindness. I think there were many cases where I expected things out of people and, you know, come on, live up to uh, who you are in Jesus Christ and why won't you? And when I look back on it now, I say, but that person seemed very confident, but that person was hurting really badly. And what that person needed from me uh, was not a list of exhortations. Uh, what that person needed from me is kindness. I'm going to do a final three questions now with Russell Moore, author of The Courage to Stand. 
do these quick, Russell, and you just give me, you can give me a little bit of explanation if you'd like. I'll just give you three questions. You give me the first thought that comes to mind. First, what is the last great book you've read? Um, I think the last great book that I have read would probably be Marilyn Robinson's new volume in the Gilead uh, series, Jack. Okay. It's very different from the others, but but everything that she writes is great. Excellent. Okay. What brings you calm in the storm? Uh, my wife, uh, Maria, and uh, friends. I have um, a couple of different friend groups that I really am dependent on. Uh, one of them um, has sort of moved to Zoom over uh, <laughs> uh, over the pandemic time. And, and another of them, I have a group of uh, guys here that we, you know, get together and read T.S. Eliot or something like that, which you, it's really just the excuse for us right. to actually get together. Right. And, uh, and so we're, we're finding socially distanced way to do it, but that, that brings me a great deal of calm. Last question then, where do you find good news today? Oh, I think there's lots of good news uh, today. And uh, most of it has to do with uh, seeing what God is doing uh, among young Christians who are uh, following Christ, often in some very, very difficult circumstances. And I get to see that all the time on college campuses and in other places. And then also to see what God is doing around the world uh, with Christians who are faithfully serving Christ in, again, very, very difficult circumstances. When when you encounter a, a Christian, as I did not long ago, who had um, who had uh, come a, across a river out of China, mm-hmm. uh, you know th- those sorts of things are, are that's that's good news. Um, my guest on Gospel Bound has been Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, author of The Courage to Stand. Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Uh, Russell, as always, it's great to talk to you and was really encouraged by this book and by this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold.